A word of warning. This podcast may contain themes that some listeners might find distressing. Not always, but sometimes. However, this podcast will definitely contain strong language. Therefore, if neither of these things sound appealing, it's probably not the podcast for you then, is it? Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Narcissist Ramblings podcast with me, the Narcissist Psychologist. Um, this week's podcast is with Dan Osman, a health coach, podcaster and a parent who's experienced baby loss. I'll be honest, I've been fortunate to not have to think much about miscarriages and baby loss in my life, but I think that's not necessarily the case for many people. Um, I met Dan on another, on another podcast we did together as guests um, and I then followed him on, on Instagram. Um, and one day in October, I saw a post that he'd put up about Baby Loss Awareness Week, uh, which was from the 9th to the 15th of October. Um, and in the post, Dan had put the name of his daughter, Maeve Melody Osborn. Um, I make reference to this later in the podcast, but the post stopped me in my tracks because I'd, you know, as I've just mentioned, I'd not necessarily given much thought about baby loss much in my life. And I'd especially not ever really thought about fathers who had experienced this. So I spent the next week um, from, you know, between the 9th to the 15th of October learning more about what it's like for men who have experienced baby loss. And as part of that, I've asked Dan um, if he'd be willing to come on my podcast and talk to me about what it's been like for him. And this is that conversation. Um, I'm honoured to have had heard Dan's story about his daughter, Maeve, and I hope you learned something from it too. But please, you know, do take care. It's a very honest, honest conversation, which some listeners may find difficult to hear, but I do, however, think that it's a very important conversation to have, especially between two men. Um, well, hello again, Dan. Nice to meet you. Um, meet you again, rather. Um, I know we uh, met each other on another podcast previously um, and got to know each other that way. Um, so uh, I'm grateful for, you, for your time and uh, I'm especially grateful for the conversation that we're about to have. Um, so welcome and um, yeah, how are you? I'm, I'm really well, thank you. I just want to say it's a huge honour to be invited on uh, and open up space for this kind of conversation because uh, as I've kind of previously mentioned to you uh, off the recording is it's, I don't really think many people are receptive for this kind of conversation. Firstly and foremost, because of, because of what it's about, but for a lot of people I found it's dealing with their own discomfort and their own unease about it and I, I certainly found initially when I wasn't comfortable speaking about it and then I did want to open up to friends I would be met with almost not dismissive comments but I, I remember distinctly one friend turning around to me saying anyway we don't need to talk about that anymore because it was, I, I could see it was more his own discomfort he was dealing with because at that point in time actually I did really want to talk about it because I hadn't I hadn't really spoken about it, but more from a, a shared experience point of view, especially for what my wife went through, because I'm, I'm probably the more communicative. In, I mean that in the most respectful sense, one out of the two of us. And I, I know she had her own way of dealing with things, I think, especially with grief and a family dynamic and a couple's dynamic is everyone has their different ways of dealing with things. And there, there were many times when we weren't really aligned. I know things that she found comfort and easing. I didn't. And the way I was kind of dealing with things was on reflection, maybe not as healthy right now. Um, she, she wouldn't have found a comfort in. Yeah. And I guess that's quite interesting, actually. Um, I think before we get into it, I guess, do you want to just kind of 
highlights, I guess, what your loss was, what your experience was, just to kind of contextualize the conversation. And then there's something very interesting that um, I want to pick up on that you mentioned in terms of the different communication styles between you and your wife. Um, mm. And we can come back to that if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, from a just having children, conceiving children point of view, it's already something my wife and I are hugely grateful of because it hasn't something, been something that came easy for us. And even with our first child, we was, we was kind of on the cusp of doing further investigations, looking into IVF and, and everything like that. And then by chance, she changed her job and just things happened after a couple of years. So I guess our, our relationship and the dynamic when it came to children has always been one of, I don't really understand why parents complain about being parents. It's it's a choice at the end of the day. If you really didn't want to be parents, you didn't want children, you didn't have to have them. And there's, there's a huge amount of people that would love to be parents that can't, unfortunately, because, you know, um, either because they can't conceive or they haven't been yet been able to, or they've experienced loss similar to us, whether that's, that's miscarriage or stillbirth. And, you know, again, these aren't necessarily things that are spoken about. So when it, it came to trying again for our other than two babies, um, it, it had been a little while. My wife found quite unlike the fir first pregnancy, she was very tired all of the time, sleeping like 13, 14 hours almost. And then, took a pregnancy test and that was a you know that was a surprise because again it wasn't anything we'd, we'd invested in too much thought because we'd been through the whole thing before of the disheartening checking tests you know she's come on a period this month which obviously means she's not pregnant and all of those kind of things so once we're there I think like most people you've got this mix of angst and excitement on the run up to that that first one week scan but we're going back to still amidst the the pandemic almost where it's, it was still a bit odd she had a bit of a bleeding around the 10 week mark we decided to get a private scan and lo and behold there was an explanation why she was so significantly more tired than the previous pregnancy and that's because there was there were two heartbeats there which was a shock because twins just don't run in our family they're non-identical as well one being that of a, a boy and a girl which we didn't know at the time and Again, because it was the pandemic, we decided to pay for a private one because we couldn't get in for one around the scheduled twelve week mark, and we decided to share that with our our, our daughter at the time. Our daughter at the time, she still is our daughter, but at that time, is that she was there for the scan and she saw the the, the heartbeats and everything. And well, I mean, when you hit the twelve week mark, I, I don't want. I can't. Obviously, my feelings about that have hugely changed now, but I think there is almost a, a sigh of relief. For a lot of people expecting you're you're told that is quite a pinnacle moment and yeah from it's then the on, it's the time that sort of you know people will uh feel like it's a safe time to kind of share that they're expecting and that's you know it's um it's almost like a certainty isn't it at that point yeah absolutely we were we were very cautious we didn't tell anyone about it and you know there's a huge element of sensitivity as well as within our, our friends and family we know of people that are trying to conceive those that okay experience miscarriage and those that just can't on you know so we didn't want to share our news until it was very definite and then around 16 week mark we actually did get to get our scan and i remember it's particularly icy and rose and my wife she had i mentioned her that day don't go walking outside because it's, it's very icy outside and she had a little tumble down the stairs just she slipped on her own jacket it was one of those big long things we ended up in hospital and there was a worry the angst with that and then it, it seemed fairly I don't want to say plain sailing because it clearly wasn't up until 
we didn't get our scheduled scan around the 20 week marks. I think it fell on the 21st and by then we, they could tell us the genders, one boy, one girl. It's quite incredible seeing that, especially how much that seems to have advanced over my, my eldest is only six over those years. And um, when you find out you have twins, that's then scheduled for more frequent checks. That is, and our regular routine scan, which ended up being on the 24th was, was, was the, you know, the, the, the significant day. Whereas Jack's my boy, he was uh, the, the first twin at the bottom. And then there was a momentary pause from the sonographer and the pained expression. Um, I think, you know, I knew it in my bones then. And again, being COVID, it was, you weren't allowed in at the same time. There was me pacing oh, God. the whole way on, on the run up to that. And it's, there's still that little bit of hope though, almost like, you know, they've just cocked this up. You know, she's going to go get someone more senior now, someone more experienced. They're going to come in, they're going to find a fault in her scanning. And um, yeah, uh, Maeve had passed somewhere in the last 24 to 36 hours no explanation no no impact but of course you're you know you're trying to rationalize this you're trying to yeah. to gauge what it means and um i can't really put that into words i don't think apart from just describing it abstractly because truthfully it was, it was a bit of a haze from there i don't really know what we discussed in the car um my daughter was around my mother-in-law's at the time so i knew that was a difficult conversation i would have to have i didn't did have she, words for that did she know that you were expecting two two babies yeah she knew from the 12 week scan because she was there and um it, it's, it's abstract to a child they don't they you know yeah you show them a sonographer sonography picture they don't really understand it they have no real concept of death or anything else and um i remember being especially cautious about how i phrased it we're not really just of any any sort so i didn't want to say in the sky or past or or sleeping or anything like that um and she'd drawn them that the baby's a, a picture when i went to collect her and i remember how heartbreaking that was um so from there to cut some of it is there was i think we counted in, in the entirety about 23 hospital visits we had they wanted to see us more frequently just to check on things and the bereavement midwife had said that because it was quite angst inducing going to the hospital again yeah rose would have to go in on her own when they're ready to see us then i would be able to go in as well we're still having to wear masks and everything around hospitals at that time her, her dongle sonography dongle wasn't working so not being able to find jaxia's heartbeat on a regular oh, check Jesus. after yeah. that as well and the drive to the the hospital and everything that came with that and then the first machine we tried at the hospital wasn't working either so it just seemed like the longest day. Fucking hell. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I've, and I physically felt sick. I feel sick talking about it, if I'm honest. I still feel sick talking about it. It's not because I don't want to talk about it, just because a lot of that that comes back. And then it's quite yeah, a visceral memory, I can imagine. Yeah. And all, all the. It's very difficult to explain to people, because I suppose. Unless you're a parent, you'll have a better understanding, perhaps if you've experienced miscarriage. But I think what's so significantly different, especially about what Rose went through and having to grow, you know, essentially grow the children herself, is that she continued to carry them both 
and yeah. I'm incredibly grateful that she found that a source of comfort. Yeah. Because I don't think everyone would. She found that quite comforting that Maeve was still there. Still there. And um, that she was able to nurse her and that she would still have to still be able to deliver her at some point and that she was just patiently watching her her brother grow. But um yeah, everything that came with that and there's no real closure or or clarity or opportunity to grieve because I can reflect on that period now and it's almost I didn't believe I would ever meet my son mm. I almost accepted that we'd, we'd lost both of them at some point which I I still feel incredibly guilty about but I'd be being dishonest about that if I if I described it in any other way so almost going to those scans waiting for the worst which just was an awful experience every time but um the, the pregnancy continued we, we'd agreed to you know there was the option for a natural birth i think but there was also that would come with risks and things that could potentially go wrong and we opted for a well i say we rose opted for a c-section and um she she gave birth to both, both babies still jacks and then okay. shortly after mave so you get the opportunity to spend a bit of time with your child you carry them they ask you whether you would like to see them i think for both of us rosa possibly feels a bit different now she wishes she she would have but because of you know mave had, had been there um i had a very vivid image of my in my mind especially with them being twins that she would look quite similar to her brother mm. so for me i didn't want to change that we have pictures if i ever do want to see them um mm. i held her they put her in what they call cold cot which sounds awful just by description um to spend in your room with you for as long as as long as you're happy with and we opted to have a a selective autopsy of just her placenta because you know uh, we, we were just curious we was curious yeah. we, i think we'd, we'd always wonder but anything more intrusive than that we decided not to do because her, her body was already so small fragile and you know i, I gather down you, you're your you know as a parent is whether you're you see them or not is you start envisaging that future with them as soon as yeah. you find out you're having them you know we'd already started to buy the the two of everything the blue and pink of things and <laughs> you know the the few items that uh, rose decided to keep but many of which we, we couldn't return and just had to give away so it's 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 very abstract to to tell people that aren't parents or you know they haven't experienced something similar because almost you feel like there's a people radiate an element of well you never met them but yeah. you you kind of have you fantasized about that future the holidays you'll have and you know everything else so um yeah and then and then from that moment it's waiting for the autopsy and we you know we had we had a a funeral for Maeve which was just us um and I can't quite possibly describe the pain of having to carry that that tiny little casket because yeah I just I guess you know I've been sitting here sort of listening to you and I've been really like I, I know it sounds um maybe a bit sycophantic but I'm sort of really grateful to kind of hear you talk about it because I guess when you when we talk about baby loss or we talk about miscarriages or we talk about things like that I don't think the discussion and the sort of detail and the and the kind of pain that I can kind of imagine what it must be like is something that we sort of don't ever really go near and it's not something that 
I think as as a society we're comfortable about talking about and I think the reason I wanted to have this conversation is because I'm curious about how this conversation sounds between men and what it's like for two men to have this conversation and I can feel myself getting quite um, emotional about it because as you've pointed out I have I have children and actually you know what you were talking about in the sense of of that imagined life is something that I went through um I didn't necessarily so much with my first child because I think um for various reasons I think the um the pregnancy and the I guess the little life forming inside my partner was something quite abstract and until I saw him born until I saw like him as an actual tangible touchable human being he was a very still abstract concept concept however for my second because I already had the first I kind of knew what that would be like the second mm. time round. so actually that imagination of what a second life would be like um don't get me wrong. I was, I was stressed to my teeth as well, just because I was like, Oh my God, what's it going to be like to have a second child? But just that general sort of imagined life is, um, is something that I can totally relate to. And actually, I don't know what that is like to have that taken away. Um, and it's a really powerful thing to sort of sit and have this conversation with you and to hear the honesty and just to hear what it's like from the perspective of somebody else, particularly a man, um and to kind of feel that and i just yeah i just i just want to say thank you for sharing that um and i appreciate that yeah, thank you for for listening and i think i did mention you, you come to realize that um sadly and i think it's just for multiple reasons and you know multifaceted in life in general is that you realize people that you consider quite close in your life at that time. And I think it's, I was describing it to my wife at one point. I think it's, it's hardened me and it's softened me in different ways. And I think as a, and I mentioned to you before from a, I've never considered myself a classic male archetype, but it did feed into certain things for me. And this, what came up through a little bit of self-exploration was this protector role mm. and on, on some basic level I, I very much felt a failure at that time something that i felt like i should be able to do i should be able to protect and it, it's totally irrational to think that way. Yeah, i yeah. know that i know yeah. it's totally irrational it's it's totally out of my hands there's absolutely nothing i could have done we we, we got back Maeve's um autopsy and it was just they didn't find anything it was just one of those those things that happen and unfortunately we're not alone in that you know many yeah. people experience it many surprisingly more um don't experience the loss of 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 twins okay especially both in in their own with their own separate placentas in their own separate sacs it's, it's much more common with something called disappearing twin syndrome okay which if they are identical twins it's I'm going to butcher the phrasing, so I apologise if anyone's listening to this. But it's, it's the premise is basically one one twin absorbs the other one yeah, to a yeah. certain extent. One yeah. gets nourished more. That's called disappearing twin syndrome. But it's much more uncommon with um, twins that aren't. Mm -hmm. um, so I think is is I found at the time is my my way of of coping was almost the challenge of protecting my family in other ways and providing 
care, whether it was to my daughter and care to my wife at the time, three square meals per day, doing all the school runs. I was studying for my master's at the time. Um, I dropped out of my psychology and neuroscience in mental health masters just because I got to a point where it was just too much. But at that time, it was the challenge of working, studying, managing the household. And I, I think I was just trying to make up uh, for a lot of what I felt a failure in at the time and what I can now reflect on was just a lot of avoidance avoiding all these uncomfortable feelings in productivity and and doing the the biohacking yeah, yeah. thing and just chasing being more productive and doing rather than actually sitting contemplating and and uh grieving which I realized that I haven't really begun to do until this year really okay um and I guess and that's enough and I suppose that's the reason why I wanted to have this conversation is to kind of think about sort of the the role of masculinity or the role of manhood that plays out in in the ideal of fatherhood, but then how that particularly manifests itself in something like baby loss. Um, and again, you know, this is not necessarily an experience that will be shared by, you know, all men or any men that listen to this. And in fact, there's potentially... Um, parts of your experience that actually might be shared by women or other sort of non um non gender conforming individuals um but it's so interesting that you know one of the first things that you you say you felt was this sort of failure at being this archetypal protector um which i think many men potentially might res um might feel is actually their role within the family um and i guess did you, was that, was your own perception of that also, did you feel that that was kind of perceived by other people? Do Did other people around you also, not necessarily about the protector role, but were there other influences, I suppose, of the fact that you were a man who had experienced this baby loss that kind of you picked up on? No, I don't, you know, I'm very open about the, the therapy and the help. I've had therapy over my adult life anyway, but my wife and I both, you know, we experienced that together and it's, it's through a little bit more self-exploration. I mean, my mind runs a little bit deeper. I don't want to get too much of an tangent, but I didn't really have any positive male role models growing up. Okay. So it was like formalising my own sense of masculinity and what a male is in the world was largely off what my mum did, like the job of mm. two. So... Uh, not not distinctly effeminate but I, I think I did probably did grow up with a few more feminine qualities than masculine qualities and I've probably got quite good at being a bit of a chameleon in those environments and picking up on certain things just to get by as a basic survival thing I think like you know as if being a teenager isn't hard enough in the world is yeah. then going into being a man and actually not really knowing what a man is so it wasn't necessarily anything that was picked up by anything by anyone else but i one i, I did i did find I, I don't want to make this a complaint or a what what about ism and you know everyone's main concern obviously my main concern was my my wife's welfare all the time and back to off on tangent slightly what i was saying about friends and family that you know very hurtful that you didn't hear from people on her well-being i wasn't even hurt for myself that i hadn't been checked in on but there is um no one, I say no one, people don't really check in on, on men in, in this. And again, it's not a what about ism. I don't think it's the plight of, of men is more. It's certainly mm -hmm. not. But um, it's, it's just not really discussed, I think, you know. And I think, yeah, and I think that's, 
I th and I think that's why I'm interested in this is because, you know, as I'll say at the start of this podcast episode, the, the reason you and I are having this conversation is because um, I started following you from a podcast that you and I did together. And then actually during Baby Loss Awareness Week, I saw that you shared a post or you put a post up about Maeve. And it was, it stopped me in my tracks, if I'm completely honest, because I just think that when we think about miscarriage and when we think about baby loss and when we think about that, rightly or wrongly, and this isn't about sort of trying to say, again, like you're saying, it's not about, it's not a whataboutism, but the, the immediate kind of thought and the immediate kind of concern does go to the to, you know to to the mother or or, or the person who gave um or, or who was um con conceived the the child and it it was just something that really yeah stood out for me in the sense that it's not something firstly it's not something that's discussed a lot anyway which is why there's the whole sort of baby loss awareness week um in the first instance but I can imagine that it's certainly not something that is discussed amongst men because I think I can probably count on both hands the conversations that I've had or the conversations I've heard, um, you know, just in and amongst my social group um, with my partner about people who I know that have been pregnant and then experienced a loss and the conversation has always been around the woman and what it must be like for the woman. And even I have never been like, Oh God, you know, what was it like for the dad or is the dad okay? Or, um, and it's just so interesting that that's the narrative, isn't it? And I just, yeah. Thank you so much for using her name as well, by the way, you know, I don't know if the, the, the listeners will have a vested interest in this subject. Um, because of the title of it or anything like that, but that's that's so incredibly important to parents that they are acknowledged, and if they've given given them a name, it is a huge deal. So, thank you so much for that. You're um, welcome. It, it is. It is. It's, you know, it's it's a very interesting dynamic, and I think the conversations I have with men, I don't, I don't want to say forced upon. I, I find like writing, and you know, I've, I've written a couple of posts on Instagram. I did a, a live. I just I don't know what got into me one day. I just did, decided but I, I want to talk about this and I, I just did a live and I just spoke to myself for, for half an hour and I put just put that out there because writing and that kind of thing I find extremely cathartic in terms of articulating mm. your own feelings and what you're you know formalizing your own thoughts on things but the men I have had this conversation with it is is forced sometimes I find and not not on my part but I know it's but then from a place of compassion I do understand it's is people's discomfort they're dealing with but at the same time and i mentioned hardening and, and softening at the same time is i'm hardened to the fact that i don't have much tolerance for that especially when it comes to supposed friends and family that are supposed to have a vested interest in you and you know to show no interest in the well-being of of my family again and maybe that's the the whole protector thing as well it's not necessarily about me it's just the you know, no one's asked about me though no one's asked about rose and no one's asked about jacks and I, I think what i found especially is because people want to tiptoe around what happened to mave is they 
they don't even acknowledge Jax's existence because almost by acknowledging Jax, yeah, they yeah. feel they might have to bring up Maeve, and that makes them feel uncomfortable. So, it, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's a. I heard grief described as something that never shrinks, but you just grow around, and it, it, yeah. it comes in, comes in waves, and it, it um, and again, like to, you know, to someone that perhaps isn't pregnant, grief sounds like such a strong word to use, but I, I don't know how a, another way of describing it. But I've gone off many tangents. But what I was trying to get back to, perhaps when I was younger, is that um, for me, what actually came out of it, I, I'm, I'm cautious to say diagnosis because. I don't think these things define us. They're just things that yeah. I think help us make sense of um there are many parts of my childhood I don't remember. And perhaps this protector role came in when I was much younger, when possibly a, a child shouldn't be put into that position. So the the therapist that we were speaking to, we, we spoke about um C C PTSD, so more complex yeah. trauma. <clears throat> so it brought up quite a lot, lot for me, which I think possibly I'm still dealing with him in my own space and own time but I think that from a self-understanding point of view it's been a real exploratory story which yeah. I'm nowhere near the end of and I don't know whether you are but for I guess you know trying to put it into words for people that may be listening is like you know what I really try to stress and help people understand is you know even miscarriage is incredibly sad but you know Rosa carried both children you know 24 weeks when we sadly lost Maeve is is at the point where they're growing their own hair yeah <clears throat> the developed features from there they just get to larger babies you know she was she was with her fingers and toes she continued to carry two children and she gave birth to two children yeah um, and she would always be a twin mum yeah which is is in, incredibly sad and I, I mentioned to you the the different ways in which we cope sometimes she's found groups a certain comfort again women's groups mm-hmm. predominantly i think the closest thing i was introduced to was like a men's football <clears throat> group which i've i've got no really interest in football so and i think and i think sort of to touch slightly on on that but then also something that you said right at the start where you were saying that um you and your wife communicate differently um, and she I guess she's more non-communicative is that what you said or she's chosen chosen to do it slightly differently whereas you're a bit more with with this subject especially you know she she would she would talk to her trusted friends and again it's I think we've both found is there are and this is not to say that there are any less of friends there are there are certainly friends i will go to to speak about these sort of things they're friends that i just won't you know i think there are levels to expectations you can have from people mm-hmm. and rather than put myself in a situation where it may be they say something insensitive or, or they don't offer the support in which i'm hoping right. for which is an unfair expectation on them is there's just certain people i won't speak to but i am maybe with what i do for a job as well a little bit more communicative from this standpoint so for example just the fact that i'm we're talking about this now is you know when we originally planned this yeah. i had i hadn't told her about me doing this podcast and she just she couldn't even fathom doing that and having that as an okay. open conversation and, and and right okay so there's two so that's two different types of i guess communication that you're talking about so you're a bit more happy to kind of talk about this from a place of um you know I guess comfort that you have with the the circumstance that you're in, whereas your wife doesn't. But I guess you've highlighted that 
she will talk to some trusted friends and, and talk about it with them. And that's just made me curious as to, and I think you've kind of answered this question already, but do you have that for yourself? No, no. Do you have, and I guess, and I guess that's just a sad thing as well to hear, isn't it? For me, I'm not saying that you think it is sad, but for me, it is a, it is a sad thing to hear that actually your partner has, sorry, your wife has somebody or some people that she can talk to about this and actually mm. you don't for whatever reason. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have male friends. I'm very close to my mum my and my sister. Uh, I, I think I, I protected them a little bit from it because unfortunately, um, especially at the very start, my mum is, my mum and my sister are both very emotional and uh, my mum just was not the person to speak to okay. because I, I couldn't, I couldn't take the burden of her grief at that time as well. It was just too much. So although she would have happily listened to have to listen to her cry um, on the phone or in person, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with. Um, but I, I, I mean, I write about it and I, I make a conscious effort of, I, I don't want to sound, make this sound, altruistic or like you know i'm doing anything but i for me it helps you know there is a, a selfish part of this having these conversations and especially with people that are receptive to listening because people show willing and i guess when we talk about mental health broadly and this whole strength in speaking narrative is people will flippantly say that but those that are dedicated and have the ability and the skills to actually hold space listen respond appropriately that's a whole another ball game it's, it's very easy to jump on social media and say inbox inbox me my door's always open you yeah. know if you're struggling go speak to someone but I, I don't think many or the majority at least are equipped to deal with people at their most vulnerable and the last thing you want to do when you're feeling vulnerable and you're opening up about these sorts of things is is having to comfort someone else and, and their discomfort about it so I guess the the way that you've kind of managed that is is through catharsis, but not necessarily through catharsis of communicating with other people. You've kind of talked about writing it and, and therapy and therapy. And therapy. You know, yeah, the, the the therapy has has been hugely beneficial, and that's um, a, a, been a, a combination of EMDR and okay. talk therapy as well, mainly. Yeah. Okay. Um, which you will have yeah no yeah yeah i'm familiar with that yeah, you'd be very familiar with those but um talk therapy for me was just a, almost a little bit of just having someone validate your experience but someone that has those skills which it does sound a little bit sad is that you know <laughs> maybe maybe it's the company but also that there's, there's, there's an element of that as i said that protecting others is i do know of people that would have those skills but also yeah you get an element of vulnerability hangover whereas you oh i've shared a bit too much oh i can see that bit's made them squirm a little bit so that that's something i need to work on as well so yeah so there's something about also wanting to protect other people from i guess the i don't want to say emotional labor because i'm not i'm not sure that that's the right word necessarily but i guess the the emotional impact of of of, of a discussion like that because I suppose as we've discussed and as you've quite rightly highlighted um, earlier on sometimes people aren't necessarily um, able to have a conversation about this for their own reasons um, because it is it is quite a difficult conversation for some people to have and maybe a difficult experience for people to to kind of fathom um, and I guess 
I don't necessarily want to make this sound like a trite question, but I suppose you're the only person that I have spoken to about this um, particular subject. So you're the only person that I can really ask this question to. But I suppose if you had a piece of advice to give to somebody that knows of somebody who's gone through an experience like you, what would you say to them in order to, to support somebody else? How would, what would, what would that look like for you? I think for me, it was, um, even the, the, the non-reciprocated messages, the not necessarily instigating a conversation to engage in one, but just the, just to let you know, we're thinking of you. If there's anything we could do, you know, I think that sometimes I think it's just, you know, people need to be reminded that even if they're not ready for that help, they're not ready to speak about those things. They're not ready to reach out. It's just a reminder there are people there, you know, that helps you, helps you keep you connected to the outside world because you do want to withdraw. You do want to re re retreat. You, I did take mild detours from doing the school run just because I didn't want to speak to people. I put myself in a situation where I'd have to explain the situation again, or they would have, they would say something insensitive or silly, or it's as much as you, at that time, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, you're, you're damned if you don't show any interest, but you're also damned if you say something insensitive, so it's just far easier not to speak to someone. So I think for support is, you know, as I said to you, you know, using their name, that, that's so, so important. I think that's checking in on, on the broader family. So it's the indirect ways of, of not necessarily checking on you, but letting letting that person know that your thoughts about them extend to their whole family and their well-being. And it's very, very it's, not, it's not a big ask, I don't think, but um, it sounds like almost bitter in a way. And I don't mean it to sound that way. Maybe, it's, maybe some of that's still raw in me. Just being entirely honest, but just, just the the I think that just the bare the bare minimum. The bare of, minimum, yeah. And it's no, it really is no much more of that. I'm not saying you know meals or you know something around to cook, clean for you or anything like that. It's um, I guess there's something about. Sorry. No, no, no. Please continue. So, sorry, no. I, I guess what you're sort of talking about is this idea of just being held in mind that actually you have been yeah, through something. Exactly that. And that it's going to be hard and that there is somebody on the other side who will, when you're ready to have a conversation or when you're ready to kind of return back to some kind of um, normalcy, whatever that looks like, that there'll be somebody mm. waiting to, to to be there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is. And it's not even words sometimes. I, I, I kind of bypass it. It's only just sprung to mind. But um, the butterfly has been a huge source of comfort to us because... I don't know whether it's all hospitals, but the hospital that we were in when you when you a child is still born is they put a sticker of a butterfly on your records. Okay. It's just a, an unwritten, unspoken. This is what happens to these people. So you don't have to keep going over the details. But we have we've got solar panel butter, butterflies. I've got a butterfly tattoo on my arm. Um, things like you did, you know, lighting candles and just acknowledging that this is something that people go through goes a long way, but you know i've got i've got one cousin in particular um as well as friends and family and they just send me a butterfly emoji from time to time and it sounds it sounds so silly but that, that goes such a long way and um 
yeah and obviously just people asking after the extended family you know the, the people that still ask after rosa and ask ask after jacks you know because he's he's his own person i don't i don't want this this story to become his his story um i don't want it i certainly don't want it to be tainted but we, we commemorate her in our own little ways i think i mentioned to you and i'm conscious of time is you know things which we find comfort and differences amongst us is Rosa has a almost I don't want to say it is a, it's almost become a little shrine corner of comfort for her in the home whereas I still find that quite raw and incredibly difficult so it's I think as a couple it's acknowledging you're you're in different spaces with that with that and we talk about healing in Instagram sound bites I don't think it's a destination for a lot of people no no it's a continuous process i think for some or just a way of kind of managing one's world as it is okay um i just wanted to say um yeah we've come to the end of time for this conversation and i just wanted to say thank you very much dan i really do appreciate this and and i really hope that somebody um who listens to this um has found some kind of comfort in it and uh i really appreciate it thank you Thank you. I, I really appreciate you. I, I genuinely mean that. Those those opening up um, space for this conversation, the things that you've done on social media, and, and you know, as I said, that just just using her name is is such a, an incredibly important thing for parents of that lost a, a child. I think. Okay. All right. I'll chat to you soon, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I hope that was an episode that you were able to take something away from, whatever that may be. Um, and I just wanted to take the time again to thank Dan for sharing his story about Maeve with me. If you've experienced baby loss and would like support, you can get in touch with Sands, a baby loss charity in the UK. You can also check out the Lily May Foundation. And if you are a father, the Lily May Foundation also hosts the Still Parents podcast, which I have listened to and is a great resource for fathers to hear the experience of other dads who may be going through the same thing. Please also check out the website for Baby Loss Awareness Week. There are loads of support resources listed. And if you've, and even if you've not lost a child, please do consider lighting a candle for next year's Wave of Light, which will be at the end of Baby Loss Awareness Week. If you have found some benefit in this episode and you think that somebody else might find it helpful too, please do share. Also, please rate and leave a comment too. But mostly, I hope you have a good day. And I'll speak to you soon.